Well, I think we'll get started. Hi. Oh, hi, Blair. Hi. Hi. Been thinking lots about roads and journeys uh, lately. Uh, our journey to Ontario, uh, my own journey that I'm going through, um, and then the sermon little mini series we've been doing on in Second Samuel on David's long journey out of Jerusalem. So with all those um, thoughts of journeying, I want to read a story that we don't talk about a lot in church. It's part of the, the resurrection story, but for whatever reason, it doesn't get brought up much. And that's probably because it's only in Luke. Matthew, Mark, and John don't mention it. And it's kind of a strange little story. And so I'm going to read, it's from Luke 24. Uh, it's called The Road to Emmaus. And Emmaus was a town within walking distance from Jerusalem. And I really, really love this story. I love the mystery of it. I love the mystery of the gospel, how not everything, like it takes a lot of faith to believe a lot of it. And this is very mysterious. I love Jesus's response here. I love um more than anything, I see a lot of myself in these two wandering disciples heading down the road, not knowing exactly where they're going or what they'll find. And I see a lot of myself in that. So here's Luke 24, starting at verse 13. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, two of them being disciples. It's just mentioned a bunch of uh, disciples, men and women. Um, and now it continues that thought. They were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? Jesus plays dumb and asks. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels, who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Jesus said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Which sounds harsh, but whenever I imagine Jesus saying this, I imagine like him gently shaking his head, and, You goofballs, don't you get it? Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked to us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord is risen has risen has appeared to Simon. Then it, the two told them what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. 
I really do love that story. In fact, one of my best friends, Jordan Blasetti, who many of you have met, um, him and his wife, Katie, have a big painting in their living room wall of the disciples walking with Jesus on the road to Emmaus. He really, he's the first one who kind of introduced me to the depth of this story. And it's good for communion. Uh, It's kind of all of the gospel in one walk, in one journey to Emmaus. It's the whole gospel. The disciples, they... They know enough of the story that they can tell that something mystical, something beautiful, something powerful is happening, but they don't know the full story yet. And so they're kind of wandering down the road, looking for faith, trusting in what Jesus had said and done, believing he is who he said he was based on all the things they say, that he was prophet, powerful in word and deed. They know enough of the story that they can sense Jesus here. They can sense divinity here. And then Jesus pops up, shows up, starts wandering with them. They don't even know it's him. And that is so true of so many of our journeys. Jesus is there walking with us and we don't even know it. We don't even see him, but he's there. And it's not, Jesus kind of chastises them. Don't you get it? You goofs. Um, Explains all of how scripture points to him. uh, And then sits down and has a meal with him. And it's, so beautiful to me that it's not until they're sitting down having a meal together like family breaking bread uh, that that's when they fully realize who exactly is in their midst on our journey i'm sure we are at different times different parts of these disciples' journeys sometimes we're cleopas wondering where he is sometimes our eyes are fully open to him and we absorb him and we, we feel his powerful presence burning within us at different times, we're, we're different places on this journey, but he is always there. And at communion time, I love that he is made fully revealed in something as simple and as, as um, commonplace day-to-day as breaking bread. Um, and so we as a family are going to break bread together now. We're going to eat together, have this feast together at the table of the king, this simple feast. And as we do, I just, I pray that our hearts would recognize the burning within us as being his presence here, his, um, his guidance, his, his love, his care. And let's pray a prayer of thanks for the God who journeys with us wherever we go. Jesus, thank you for the bread. Thank you for your broken body. Thank you for the juice, the tea, the water, whatever we're drinking, which is representative of your blood shed for us. And in your body and in your blood, we see... Uh, salvation we see hope we see unity in you thank you for inviting each one of us to your table as broken as we are um, sometimes on this journey we wander very far from you god but you always are there to draw us back to put a burning within our hearts so i pray that our eyes would be open to your presence that we would see you see where you are and be amazed by you all over again not just today, but every day. Thank you for journeying with us. We praise you. Uh, Thank you for the bread and the juice in your name. Amen. All right. Let's uh, continue on this journey. So my attempt at keeping last week's sermon at a reasonable length, I told Angie, it's long, but I'm going to whittle it down. That was a complete failure. So I had to split it up and drag it out and make it a little longer, spreading it out over two weeks, which is appropriate considering we're discussing a long, drawn-out processional that King David takes from Jerusalem, the royal city, 
as he flees from the uprising led by his son Absalom. In the same way that David heads out on an overly long, painful journey, you too have been forced into an overly long, painful journey, right along with the king. So, sorry about that. But like the road trips that I mentioned last week that I take to Ontario, or like Eva taking her sweet time, pacing her journey down the aisle towards Abe, a long journey is often worthy of extra significance and reflection. And in David's long procession out of Jerusalem towards the borders of his kingdom, we see a great reflection of a later king, a, a greater king's long procession towards Jerusalem. Both processions are filled with sorrow and grieving. Both feature a usurped king giving up power so that he can gain it back later. And both feature loads of humility and loyalty. We'll spend the bulk of today's message examining Jesus' journey, but first, a quick reminder about what we talked about last week. I'm not going to read the entire passage again. Um, you can feel free to re-listen to part one of the sermon from last week, excuse me, on the podcast if you like, or read the passage on your own, which is 2 Samuel 15, verse 13 to 16, verse 14. 15, 13, 16, 14. Sounds like a kindergartner trying to count. Um... That's the passage if you want to reread it. But I'm going to remind us of the people who David met along the way as he heads out of Jerusalem. That's what he does. He's like, oh, Absalom's coming. We got to get out of here. He meets six different people along the way. So I'm going to give a very brief synopsis, reminder of what each person is like. And I'm going to do so through rhyme just to keep your interest. Okay, so first was Ittai. Here's the rhyme for Ittai. Ittai, nice guy, foreign Gittite. Pledges loyalty, death or life. That's Ittai. Next was Zadok. Takes the ark for a walk. Pledges loyalty through spy talk. That's Zadok. And that whole encounter with the ark, by the way, was pretty fascinating. David, Zadok's bringing the ark with David. And David's like, no, no, send it back. It belongs in Jerusalem. If it's God's will for me to see it again, then I will rejoice if it's God's will to punish me for all my many sins and I never see the ark again, I will accept God's judgment. And so Zadok, he says, Zadok, go back, but you're going to be my spy. Third was Ahithophel, a disloyal fella. David prays that his wisdom would smell a. That's a stretch. It's hard to rhyme with Ahithophel. These Hebrew names are tough. So Ahithophel was David's trusted advisor, and he turned on David and is now giving advice to Absalom. But David prays. David, he refuses to do anything about it. But he trusts God will do something about it. And he asks God to turn Ahithophel's wisdom to foolishness. Fourth was Hushai. Hush, he's a spy. That's my favorite one, by the way. Hushai, hush, he's a spy. Will confuse Absalom, turn the foolish to wise. Um, so Hushai will be key in next week's sermon. He is going to also confuse the wisdom of Ahithophel. The fifth man was Mephibosheth's keeper, Ziba. Loyal to David or Saul? We'll see, buh. I'm sorry. It's bad. I know it's bad. You try rhyming with Ziba. Um, last was Shemi, raining curses on Davy, but the king takes no vengeance, trusting God sees his misery. Shimi, Shemi, by the way, is my, along with Ittai, the first guy, Shemi was my favorite because... He just follows David, throwing rocks at him, throwing dirt at him, cursing him, blaming David for stuff David didn't actually even do. And one of David's advisors is like, hey, you want me to cut off his head? 
He's doing bad stuff. And David says, no, whatever he's saying, God told him to do. Let him get his cursing out. I am his family's enemy. It's very understandable. We will take no vengeance on this man. Besides, maybe God is having him curse me for a reason. Maybe I deserve it. And that's that's where we're going to kick off our, our sermon. So I don't know if that was helpful. Probably not, but at least it rhymed. So as we move into how all of this is a reflection of King Jesus' journey towards Jerusalem, where he will experience pain and abandonment and death, I'm going to reread the last page I read from the last sermon before I move into the story of Jesus. Hopefully that will serve as a better reminder than these silly rhymes that I've come up with and hopefully prepare us to worship our great King Jesus. And so we begin with David's response to Shimei's cursing, which David's response I find absolutely amazing. So David understands that he is worthy of cursing and shame. He sees all this pain and hardship that he's experiencing on this entire long journey out of Jerusalem in a very healthy way. David says, I am deserving and I will still cling to God's will. So I I know that these punishments are just and fair, that I have sinned so greatly against God that if this punishment is the end of me, I will accept it, but I will still cling to God's will. David still trusts that God's long-term will for himself is not exile and abandonment, but rather reinstatement and redemption. He's trusting that the same thing he gave to Absalom, redemption and reinstatement, that God will in turn give to him. So David here in chapter 15 and 16, well, chapter 16, is at the very boundary of his kingship. And I talked about how he's at the, the boundary of his kingship in more ways than one. He is at the literal border of Israel, about to cross over the Jordan River into lands that aren't his. He's at the very outer edge of his territory, literally. His long, mournful procession has taken him as far as possible from the throne geographically. But he is also at the boundary of his kingship in another more important figurative way. He is also as far from his throne as possible figuratively. He has some choices to make. Does he allow Absalom to take over? thus denying his own God-ordained kingship. No, that would cross a boundary into irrelevance that David doesn't see in himself. God has made him king and has promised him through covenant that his family would always reign, that he would reign in peace. So he doesn't believe this is the end of him. Does he arrogantly rise up against his traitorous son? No, because that would cross a boundary into pride and self-reliance that he would certainly end in destruction for David. He says, I'm not going to rise up against David or against Absalom. That's in God's timing. I'm going to accept what God has for me, even though it's lowliness, humility, submission. Does he punish disloyal people in one final act of royal justice? No, because that would cross a boundary into vengeance and create only more enemies at a time when friendship and loyalty are at a premium for the exiled king, the fleeing king. So David will not give up. David will not openly fight back and he will not cling to vengeance, to to his sense of justice. What then will the king do here at the very boundary of his kingship? And if you remember last week, he will do two things. He will trust and he will act. Those are the two things he will do. He will trust in submission and he will act in faith. David has the humility of one who knows he's been crushed. And he has the wisdom of one who works towards the will of God. He knows he's been crushed and he still works towards the will of God. He refuses to take the ark with him, knowing that he can't coerce God into favoring him. So he sends it back. It's an act of faith. 
He refuses to punish Shimi, knowing Shimi's curses of blood and murder are fair, although misplaced. So he refuses to take vengeance on Shimi. That's an act of faith. He rewards those who are faithful and loyal to him, extending his royal authority despite the smallness and sadness of the moment. That's an act of faith. And he lays the foundation for a non-violent undermining of Absalom's violent revolt. It's a plan based on secret informants and moles and double agents confusing the wisdom of his betrayers. He knows he is broken. He knows he is a humbled, broken man. He grieves knowing that this might be his end. But he also knows that he is God's chosen servant, and he makes plans knowing that if it's God's will, this will not be his end. David here is a king who weeps and rewards, plans and submits, and I love that. He is forced to put his life in the hands of Yahweh in ways he never has before. David has always been willing to put his life in the hands of Yahweh, but it's one thing to face down enemies that you yourself have created from atop a position of power that you have to give up in order to gain back, which is David's situation. He created this mess. It's his fault. So he has to give up power to gain it back, and he will trust in God's will the whole time. So, in the loyal background characters we mentioned, like Ittai, Zadok, Hushai, and Ziba, in those loyal characters, we see a reflection of David's own faithful trust in the king, following God whether it means life or death, whether it means shame or glory. But in the disloyal characters, like Ahithophel and Shemi, we see a reflection of David's own broken selfishness, sinfulness, his willingness to trust that by taking the fall now, he'll be raised up to glory later. Listen to this summary, this next sentence. Listen to this part. If you didn't hear any of that, listen to this. Because this is important for what we'll talk about for Jesus. This has been a long, humbling, painful procession that David takes to the very edges of his ability to serve as king. As he moves further from Jerusalem, the prospect of once again ruling in glory gets dimmer and dimmer, even as David plants the seeds that will one day bring victory. And man, oh man, do I ever love that statement as a portrait for our King, Jesus Christ, going to the very edge of his ability to be king, submitting himself all the way to the cross. How could this be the Messiah dying on a cross? going all the way to the boundaries and borders of his willingness to trust in God and planting the seeds that will one day bring victory. So let me explain that. Let me explain using the Gospel of Luke as our journey guide. So Luke, chapter 13, sits right almost at the halfway mark of that glorious Gospel. I think there's 24 chapters in Luke, and so this is right after the halfway point. And in the middle of chapter 13... So it's a relatively inconspicuous verse that seems to pop up out of nowhere and signal a change. Oh, that's mine. This is Luke 13, 22. It says, Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Up until this time, Jesus has been hanging out in the, the backwater towns of Galilee and all over, the, all over the place. But now he is turning to make his way towards Jerusalem. It's... A subtle little verse that marks a shift in the narrative of God of Luke's gospel. Everything from that point on, from Luke 13 on, is aimed towards Jerusalem. Every healing, every miracle, every teaching, all of it is part of one long procession towards the royal city. 2 Samuel 15 and 16 is David's sad royal procession away from Jerusalem, 
while Luke 13 to 19 is Jesus's royal procession towards Jerusalem, culminating on Palm Sunday with the triumphant entry. As he enters Jerusalem with palm fronds and, and rejoicing and then the crowd shouting hosannas. Luke 20 to 23 then details the sad, mournful events that take place once he arrives in the city of David. Crowds turn against him. Leaders plot against him. The enemy nation tortures and executes him. His friends prove their disloyalty to him. Women weep for Jesus, and Jesus himself weeps on the Mount of Olives, which, by the way, is the same site that in 2 Samuel 15, he ex David experiences his deepest grief as he mourns the loss of Ahithophel as an advisor. That same location is where Jesus has his deepest moment of grief and mourning. Both kings, David and Jesus, undergo a long journey surrounded by people who are variously loyal and disloyal to him, and each king must demonstrate humility and absolute reliance on the will of God, their father. Their journeys are very similar, in different ways. Everything that Jesus does on his long processional towards Jerusalem is an act of preparation for what will happen in that city. Rejection, crucifixion, resurrection, and glorification. All of which will happen within a week in the city of Jerusalem. David meets his low point at the outer borders of Israel, far from the heart of Jerusalem. Jesus is the opposite. Jesus' low point comes as he moved from the outer villages where people celebrated him as rabbi, healer, prophet, um, man of God. In those outer villages, he was beloved. But as he journeys towards Jerusalem and gets to um, the heart of Jerusalem, where the temple is, the royal palace, Golgotha, the skull, the hill of the skull where Jesus was crucified, Joseph's tomb, all those places in Jerusalem, they signify a low point for Jesus. And they're all located in Jerusalem. David goes from the heart of power out, outwards. Jesus goes from outwards to the heart of power. And that's where he experiences his lowest moments. But both David's long, sad processional and Jesus's long, sad processional are deeply inspiring to me. And for the same reasons. Both journeys find the rightful king in a state of undeserved lowliness because of a traitorous rebellion. David loses his throne due to the rebellion of his son, Absalom, while Jesus is forced off his throne down into the muck of humanity due to the rebellion of every single one of his sons and daughters in human history. We call that fallenness and sin, and we are all guilty of it. Jesus willfully steps off the throne because of the rebellion of all his children. On David's procession, we meet Ittai, a foreigner, and David offers him grace. The outsider, Ittai, then responds with absolute faithfulness. He commits to remain in the presence of his king, whether it's life or death. You can reread the story of Ittai in, in chapter 15. As Jesus begins his long procession, he too meets many outsiders, and he welcomes them into his fold through powerful acts of grace and compassion. In Luke 14, so the next chapter after, after Luke's gospel turns towards Jerusalem, and in the next chapter, Jesus heals a man with a swollen abdomen in front of the Pharisees who judge both the man with the swollen abdomen and Jesus himself. In chapter 15, two chapters after turning to Jerusalem, Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son, a rebel who makes himself an outsider. He literally kicks himself out of his father's kingdom before humbling himself and being welcomed back. In chapter 17, Jesus condemns those who lead little ones 
which isn't just children. Little ones is a term for anyone who's an outsider in that society. He condemns those who lead little ones away from the kingdom. And then he heals 10 diseased lepers. And who is more of an outsider in Jesus's day and age than a leper? And Jesus touches them, heals them, and welcomes them into his kingdom. These outsiders are welcomed in. In chapter 18, he warns the rich, who are the ultimate insiders, that they must give up everything to inherit the kingdom. After saying that we must become like little children who again are outsiders. Children in that day and age, they're just little ankle biters that you kick to the outside so the grown-ups can deal with important things. Jesus said, no, 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 no. He sits the kids on his lap, says there is no one more important in the kingdom than kids. Welcome them as you would welcome me. In fact, you must become like these kids if you want to be an insider. You must be like these little outsiders if you want to be an insider, which is so beautiful. And then I think it's also in chapter 17. He gives a blind beggar his sight back to the glory of God and celebration of all who witness it. And who is more an outsider than a blind beggar? So as soon as the the narrative points towards Jerusalem, as was true before the narrative points to Jerusalem, Jesus' whole business, his whole ministry is making outsiders insiders, welcoming those who are foreign to the kingdom in through the gates to sit at the table with the king. In other words, like David, Jesus makes it a priority on his long procession to meet others and welcome them with grace, dignity, and love. He makes outsiders insiders on his long procession. And these outsiders who then become insiders respond with loyalty and faith, just like Ittai does, just like the blind beggar and the lepers do, just like you and me do, we who were once outsiders. Jesus' procession towards Jerusalem, where his death awaits him, isn't somber. It's filled with the joy of redemption. He knows where he's going. He knows he's going to the cross, but he takes time to lift up others on the way just like David does. And I love that. It's so beautiful. Moreover, in 2 Samuel 15 and 16, David twice demonstrates an enormously humble faith by refusing to cling to what is rightfully his. He does this with the presence of the Ark of the Covenant, says, no, God will do what he will. I don't need this fancy box. I will trust in God. And in his refusal to judge the cursing of Shemi, any other king would have Shemi's head. David refuses that. Instead of grasping, David is willing to let go of both, trusting that God's will is good and fair and just. If it's God's will to see the ark again, he will rejoice. If it's God's will for him to remain in exile, he will accept his fate. If it's God's will for the king to be cursed, he will not stop Shemi's abuse, regardless of its inaccuracy or arrogance. Throughout this journey, David demonstrates a remarkable willingness to accept what God has planned for him. Jesus does this too, on his own mournful procession as well. Most famously, he does so on the Mount of Olives, the same location as David's own extreme grief. There on the Mount of Olives, just a few hours before his arrest and execution, Jesus prayed until drops of blood leaked from his brow. And what was Jesus' prayer? It's a beautiful prayer. Jesus says, Father, if there is any other way, please, I beg you, take this cup of suffering from me. I don't want to drink from it. I don't want to suffer. And yet, if this is your will, and if there is no other way, then I will drink as deeply from that awful cup as you need me to. 
God, please, I don't want to do this. Take this cup of suffering away from me. But if it's your will, I will submit and I will follow through. I will drink this cup all the way to the dregs. Like David, Jesus refuses to grasp onto what is rightfully his, power, authority, and glory. Instead, he accepts the abuse. He accepts being far from God's powerful presence. He accepts loneliness and shame. He even accepts death, knowing that it's God's goodwill and redemptive purpose to have led him all the way to that dark day in Jerusalem. So that's another way that I see beauty in connecting David to Jesus here. Then there's the fact that on his long procession, David refused to take vengeance on those who harmed and betrayed him. The time for revenge may come for David in the future, but here he must focus on his most important enemy, Absalom. It's the same with Jesus. On his long walk to Jerusalem, Jesus faced many traitors and much disloyalty. The religious elite, who should know God the best, but who lead God away from or lead the people away from God's love. Jesus has to contend with the enemies who are his own followers, who squabble arrogantly one moment and then flee in fear at the first sign of, of trouble the next. His enemies include the crowds who trumpet him a coming king one day and then are calling for his blood a week later. Basically, those he came to save either fail to acknowledge him, don't care at all, turn away from him, or worse, shout slanderous curses at him like a city full of chemise. Even God himself seems to abandon Jesus on the cross. Jesus is surrounded by traitors, betrayers, and abusers. But does he deal out vengeance? No, he deals out forgiveness. Judgment may come in the future as it does for David. Judgment may come and it will come. But does he deal out vengeance? No, for now he must focus on the most important enemy. And for Jesus, enemies aren't sinners. For Jesus, the enemy that he must focus on in going to the cross is sin, shame, and death. The common enemies for all humankind. That's who Jesus has to focus on. And if it takes nails through the wrist and dying an agonizing death, then he's willing to do that. Like Zadok the priest, or Hushai, who are confidants of David, Jesus must too join the enemy ranks in order to dismantle them from the inside. The cross is the ultimate double agent. By succumbing to the cross, Jesus robs the cross of its wisdom, appeal, and power. He robs sin of wisdom, appeal, appeal, and power. And in three days, he'll rule victorious over everything anyway. So by turning himself over, as Zadok and Hushai do, to the presence of the enemy, to the grave, Jesus is a double agent. He, he destroys it from the inside. It's an, the ultimate insurrection. How amazing is that? So, how does David's procession remind me of, of Jesus's? Well, they both meet foreigners and welcome them in. They, they meet outsiders and welcome them in. They demonstrate an enormously humble faith by refusing to cling what is rightfully theirs. They, on this long procession, refuse to take vengeance on those who harm them, instead focusing on the true enemy. And for Jesus, that's sin, shame, and death. There's one more connection between David and Jesus. And this is my favorite connection between David's procession and Jesus's procession. Both kings place their lives, their kingships, and their hopes 
in God the Father. They completely give themselves over to God's will. And I kind of touched on this already when I talked about um, Jesus submitting on the Mount of Olives, but I want to talk about it a little more. They submit fully, trusting that God's plan is best. I'll say that again. They submit fully, trusting that God's plan is best. And that is a hard, hard lesson to learn. For David, that trust and submission would be rewarded with eventual reinstatement to the throne of Israel. Spoiler alert, David will become king again. For Jesus, that trust and submission would be rewarded with eternal glory, a name greater than any other name, being seated in honor at the right hand of his Father, accepting all praise from all creation for all time. So yeah, by submitting himself to the ultimate lowliness of, of sin and shame and death, Jesus is given ultimate glory, and he deserves it, absolutely. And while they trusted and submitted, they were active. Remember I said they trust, David trusts, and he's active. It's the same for Jesus. He trusts in God's will, but it's not, he submits to God's will, but it's not a, it's not an inactive submission. Sometimes we think of submission as just waiting around for God to give us something to do. Well, no, no, God's given you plenty to do. There's lots of jobs that we have, no matter where we are in our submission journey. Love God, love our neighbor as ourself, show kindness, show hospitality, show compassion, show mercy, show forgiveness. We got lots of jobs to do. It is an active submission. Both David and Jesus, in their active submission, welcome people into the fold. They prepared themselves and others for the glory to come. They wept when necessary, they celebrated when necessary. And they sought God's direction when necessary. Submissiveness is not inactivity. Submissiveness is very active. We still have work to do as servants of the king. Lots of work to do. Beautiful, purposeful work to do. Like Ittai and the courtyard servants to David, and like David to Yahweh, and like Jesus, the Son of God, to God the Father... We too must be willing to place our lives in the strong, loving, nail-pierced hands of our God. We have our own processional that we're taking. Winding through life, colliding with humanity and divinity, following and then failing and then following some more, carrying our crosses, stepping down off our thrones, approaching the very boundaries of our faith and then turning and heading back to the glory that we're called to. And through it all, we are called to trust in our Father. We may weep, as David does, or we may celebrate, as David does. We may at times be rewarded for our loyalty, or we may need to fall on our knees because of our rebellion. We may see his glory in bright, brilliant ways, or we may have to wait until the journey is complete to see that glory. But no matter the circumstances we find ourselves in on this great procession called life, we must trust in him, as the passage says, whether in life or death. Us servants must be ready to do whatever our Lord the King chooses, which is what David's servants said to him when he said, okay, we got to leave. They said, we will follow you no matter what, life or death. And we as servants of the King must be willing to say the same. He will never lead us astray. That doesn't mean we won't experience pain and suffering, but he will never lead us astray. And besides, whether it's a long road trip or a short walk down the aisle or a lifetime of difficult discipleship, it is good to slow down and appreciate each encounter on our journey 
as we follow our good king in love and faith. He's a good king that it is good to submit to. Let's pray. God, we thank you for journeying with us. Um, In the same way that you journeyed with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, Jesus, in the same way that you were with King David as he fled and as he submitted and as he actively prepared for your will, um, in the same way that you were with those people, you were with us today too. I pray that we would submit to you, that we would trust in you, that we would give our lives over to your nail-pierced hands and, and experience the love and the peace that comes with knowing we are broken, but trusting in your glory. I pray that we would submit well, that we would follow you well. And Jesus, once again, thank you for journeying with us. No matter how wayward we are, no matter how close we are to you, you are the same, your presence is the same no matter what. So we offer you praise today as your children, and we we thank you, God, uh, for your presence, for your power. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, fellow sojourners, fellow travelers, uh, thank you for being here today, and uh, have a good journey this week. Journey with Jesus. But no matter the circumstances we find ourselves in on this great procession called life, we must trust in him, as the passage says, whether in life or death. Well, um, going to be in Ontario. Please know that if you need anything at all, that I'm, I'm just a phone call away. Just don't need us too much, okay? We're on vacay. Don't need Zoe too much, she, okay? If you need Zoe, she's on vacation. So vacay. Vacay. So take your pastoral concerns to her father rather than Zoe as you normally would. Yeah. Okay. Or nobody. Anyway, let's pray. All right, go ahead, take a minute, fill up your drinks, and uh, come on back for the sermon. It won't be as long as last week. I always say that hesitantly, but today... It's the truth. I'm not lying to you this time. It's only one hour? Only an hour today, yeah. We got to get to Buffalo Lake. So it was going to be an hour and a half. I whittled it down to only an hour. Thank you, Yella. <laughs> anytime, Chris. Anytime. I'm here all day. Yeah. You know what? If I get to the half hour mark and I don't realize it, Yella, you just unmute yourself and you like sound an air horn or something so I know, okay? <laughs> Yeah, one of these. Stop. Yeah. See prep. You got a ref whistle that might work. Mm. Right? Yeah, sure. I'll give you a penalty for a delay of pastoral. <laughs> sure. Last Sunday, I was putting <laughs> was putting on my shorts and. <laughs> well, good thing. I don't know what what happened, but something happened and my back gave out. Wow. Yeah, I won't be putting on shorts on Sunday anymore. <laughs> That's why we just see your heads, right? <laughs> I have no idea what that means, but it sounds very PG-13.
Remaining faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of all these is love.